Welcome to the Big Screen Symposium 2017 podcast. The Big Screen Symposium took place in Auckland on the 30th of September and 1st of October. Please note, while many of the speakers used clips in their sessions, we've edited these out to better suit the podcast. Award-winning filmmaker David Michaud shares details of his directing and writing process in this intimate chat with Shuchi Kotari. David is refreshingly candid about how he's carved out a career in this challenging field. So um, you talked um, in the earlier session, David, which was only 15 people, so I don't mind us repeating that part, but you talked about how Animal Kingdom was 10 years in the making, that you that was a 10-year project. You, you wrote it and you rewrote it and you rewrote it and then you were ready to shoot it. Um, can you talk to us a little bit just about that kernel of truth, that gem you spoke about, but how you found that one line and that became the thing of the movie? That one line being the... Um, the, um, the, the young man the finding... A, yeah. Well... Okay, so I'll just tell the whole story. Okay, tell the whole story then. Um, so Animal Kingdom was the first thing that I wrote when I finished uh, film school. And I came out of film school not really knowing... I mean, I, I didn't know... Well, the first thing I didn't know was that I didn't know how to have a career as a filmmaker. I didn't know what to do. Film school was so joyous and... Uh, and fun and you felt like, you know, you were there and that's what you got up every morning. It was like you, your job was to just go and either learn about films or make films or whatever. And then that year, because I, I did a postgrad and when it ended, that year ended, I suddenly had no idea. I didn't know what to do with myself. The only thing I knew to do was to write. And so I started doing that. Um, the reason Animal Kingdom took 10 years to write was because I discovered quite quickly when I started writing that I didn't know how to do it. And, and I spent 10 years teaching myself how to, and, you know, by trial and error. And, um, and over the course of those 10 years, I threw the script out maybe four or five times and started again from scratch. And as painful as that was, but there was a couple of people around me who's, you know, beautiful people who were acting in a kind of almost script editor capacity who'd say to me, you know what? I think you should try this, it's gonna hurt, but do it, throw the whole thing away and start from scratch. And uh, so I did that. And I actually, by the end, I did it another couple of times off my own bat, because I just could feel the benefit. I could feel that my writing had improved so much, you know, between certain periods that uh, there was really no point in me just tinkering around with what I already had, that I'd be better off starting from a uh, a, a blank canvas. And... But one of the key things that happened in that was, you know, the very first draft, I mean, I still have the first draft of Animal Kingdom sitting on my bookshelf and I love it because it's so terrible. <laughs> and it's, and but the thing I love most about it is that it, there is literally not a single line of dialogue, not a single scene in that first draft that's still in the movie. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And that first draft was, uh, the reason it was bad was because I came out of film school, didn't know what I was doing. I made the mistake that, you know, I think probably lots of people have made at one point or another is you go, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write a script. So you open your computer and you, you know, if you're lucky enough to back at that early nascent stage in your career to have final draft, you open your final draft and then you just go, uh, I don't know, interior room, you know? And you don't know what you're writing and you just start. And then, you know, and back then I was in my early 20s and it was, uh, and so I was, you know, uh, and I was through, basically through misadventure, I would also call myself an emotionally immature person. Uh, I just started writing, you know, basically they were just gangsters doing, saying cool things and stuff. It was just so, it was, uh, it was bad. <laughs> But there were enough people around me, you know, at, at you know, Screen um, New South Wales or where, you know, just, I remember getting that, again, getting an $11,000 development check. The biggest, the most money I'd ever seen in my life. And it was, that, the financial aspect was very exciting. But almost more important was that little approbation, getting that little thing, someone saying, look, Keep going, keep trying. We think you're, you think it's worth your while. Don't throw it in just yet. That was good. But anyway, so one of the key moments for me in that whole process of the, the maturity part 
once I'd gotten rid of the, just, you know, it's just the working out what the movie is actually about. Like, why am I making it? What is, what is, what is this movie about? You know, and for me at a certain point, I kind of realized, you know, it's, uh, you know, I mean, certainly when I first started writing that early version that was just gangsters saying stuff, and I didn't have a kid at the center, I didn't, um, it was very loosely based on a real story. It was based on the, um, the Pettengill family and their relationship with the armed robbery squad in Melbourne in the, uh, in the, in Melbourne in the 80s. Um, and there was a kid who was a part of that family who um, turned crown witness against the family. And, and, uh, but, but I, early on, I didn't know that just something about him made me feel like that this kid needs to be the central character. I'm not quite sure why. It just feels like the... And then at a certain point, I realised that oh, I think the reason why... I, what I'm, what's fascinating me about this is how... Um, is that I think this movie is about how uh, a kid, a, a young man forms for himself a moral compass in a morally corrupt world, you know, so. Um, and as soon as you have that sense of what the movie is actually about, then the, then the structure starts to uh, take a shape, you know. And when you were doing this, because, you know, you talk about that process of arriving at that guiding light, that one line that says, this is my film, this is what it's about. Um, are you also wearing a directorial hat at the same time? Or do you work in this, some writer directors work in this rather linear way where they say, I'm writing, and then when the writing is done, I'm kind of moving into directorial mode. How does it work for you? Um, I mean, you have to demarcate to a certain extent, obviously, because there are certain just the practical logistics of... But no, I, I'd start... But, you know, I have learnt now, and especially since Animal Kingdom, and looking at have, reading scripts that get sent to me and, and, um, and the, little, the couple of little things I've done in the world of TV where I've directed things that haven't, I haven't written myself, that I've now very firmly come to realise that, that it's actually... The directing begins when I'm writing. Mm -hmm. And the writing continues through the directing. You know, it's like never stop the writing, and it certainly continues again a pace at when you're editing. You know, it's basically writing. I'm back with my writer's brain again, and all of that stuff. It starts when I'm writing. When I'm writing, I don't. You know, that's when I start hearing the music of the movie, and I'll start. Um, I'll start building playlists of pieces of music and then I'm that starts to I'm definitely going to ask you about that a bit later on because for those of you who've seen David's work, music features as such an absolutely kind of integral part of, of storytelling and emotion building and it's very peculiar in particular and sound design too. So I'll reserve that for a bit later and then maybe you can, you know, uh -huh. talk about Animal Kingdom and Rover and War Machine together. So back to Animal Kingdom, you, you got your script, you wrote, did you have a few people in mind when you were writing um, in terms of casting the film, how you kind of approached the characters and... Um, Pope and Janine and I don't know who else you had in mind as... Yeah, as I mean, I did, I had, I knew that I wanted to, I wrote Ben Mendelsohn and Jackie Weaver's characters for them. Uh, and then a little bit later, just a little bit from later From the beginning? Down, from the beginning? Really early. I mean, I can't even remember whether or not it was... 10 years before I made it, but yeah, it was so that's very, pretty very amazing that, that, that you were so clear ten years before you actually shot, that you're writing for these actors in particular. Um, it is kind of a bit strange as well when you think that, I don't know that Ben would have even been old enough to play that character <laughs> back when I started writing. Um, but uh, I, like, but I, I just liked the idea of, I mean, Mendelssohn was so ripe to play that character. He Absolutely. was so, 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 so good at what he does. Um, and had built a career on the back of playing kind of sort of, you know, graphish, larrikin boys. But, you know, I had, I knew him socially and, and you, could, you know, there was just a dangerous man in there. And uh, I just, I, I hadn't, and I hadn't seen that dangerous man on screen. Um, and that dangerous man was very much part of, of what you, 
um, I mean, that danger, that menace is what laces the film from the beginning to end. There is no, there's no relenting, there's no ease, there is no way to escape, there's no little side scene where we can just rest a little bit before the menace comes back. You kept that danger um, from beginning to end. Um, how do you achieve that as a director? With Ben or generally? No, generally. I mean, Ben is a big part of it, but you kept it with everyone, you know, where, where there was no way to relax and go, okay, this is in a convention of storytelling, the moment where I can breathe a little bit before things get, you know, tense again. Animal Kingdom is very compressly, densely tense. And I think, how do you direct something like that? Because direct, have a five-week shoot, was it? Five weeks you took to... 35 days, that was seven weeks. So how do you keep, how do you keep that energy for 35 days? The energy itself isn't, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to, you don't turn up to work every morning and ever get really tense, you know, you... you uh, <laughs> I knew when I, was, when I was writing, you know, it's one of those questions you get asked. And it, actually, you get asked it, you know, what, what, is, what is it about this movie that will make it different from other, one, mm. other movies that might be cons something like it? That's just a natural question you get asked when you're trying to get something up. But I also had come to discover that uh, the, the, the flavour of the movie wasn't necessarily clear on the page. You know, I would give this people the script to read and they would... Um, sorry, I'm just aware I've just I've got my back turned to this side of the room. Um, I'd give people the script to read and they would... Uh, and, the, and I'd realise, oh, that some people think this is going to be like a Tarantino movie or some people think it's going to be like a Guy Ritchie movie or... Uh, and... And you know, in some ways, it was quite useful for me in in realizing in realizing that I that I had a responsibility to communicate to people what kind of film it was. That was part of the reason why I made the short uh, crossbow that I made before I made Animal Kingdom was just to give some a sense some sense of tone. Um, but I that was I got I really I was excited about the prospect of making a crime film that took itself very seriously and that was actually all about anxiety. That was that was the thing that had initially that always fascinated me about the, the stories that I read, true crime stories, was imagining what the lives of those people leading them felt like. I mean I I I, I get the impression that they wouldn't they don't experience the way I would, which is just be like freaking out all the time. You know? <laughs> But that stuff must be bubbling underneath yeah. the surface somewhere, you know? Just a constant feeling of something bad being about to happen. Um, we, I'd like to, for us to see a clip maybe from the film. Um, there's two clips of Animal Kingdom and we can then talk about creating some of those, you know, decisions you took around creating certain scenes. One is in relation to backstory and others in relation to um, Janine's character in a very male world, but we watch the clips first. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's the first, it's the beginning of Animal Kingdom. I haven't watched that in a while. <clears throat> you haven't seen that in a while. Last time I watched actually that, I, was, I didn't watch much more, was, it was probably about four years ago and I was in the back of a taxi in Bali with, uh, with my girlfriend Mira and Joel Edgerton and we just bought a, we'd bought a pirated copy of it and we were stuck in a traffic jam. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> um, it's such a fabulous opening. It's a fabulous opening for so many reasons and it's, um, it's such a carefully crafted film and to think that she's there to comfort him at the start and in the way that he comforts her at the end in this very beautifully bookended journey of this young man. Um, it's very economical that what you chose to do. And I like what you said earlier that this was not how it perhaps was going to open initially, that you arrived at this for a reason as this... Not even know, initially, even just... I mean, not only initially, also even right up until the very end. I mean, I had I ended up like I just I remember on the last day we, the last day of the edit, actually having a big fight with my editor because he'd had an idea like in the like basically the last day of the 
the last day of the edit that we should chop the front of the movie off. Um, that we just needed to get into it fast and it needed to have some pace. And, you know, the thing is a little, the movie's, the movie is, it, it's, you know, it's tense, but it's, it's languid too. Um, and that we needed to get into it faster and that really you're not learning anything you don't need to know. You're not learning anything you need to know in the, in the opening there, so let's just chop it off, get straight into the guts of the movie and stuff. And I went like, oh, okay, wow, I, I've, I need a weekend to think about this. So I had the weekend and I got to the end of it and I walked in on Monday morning. And I was just like, no, what a, it's crazy. They, the beginning has to stay there because the, that circularity of it is so important. The movie needs to start the way it ends, you know. Yes. Of, yeah. uh, it, it begins, it basically begins with a, a hug between those yeah. two characters and it ends with that and yet everything is different, but, you know. Um, so, you know, that made that decision. Um, and also kind of very quickly being able to give your audience where um, Josh comes from, right? Because we never go back into his life once he's with the grandmother. Um, so this was our only way of knowing yeah. where he came from. And it was such a beautiful condensed way. And of so you, try, you need to pack information into that, you know, because it did feel to me like you did need to know, to the extent that the movie is a fish, you know, it's, it's a story about a kid, you know, a young man forming a moral compass in a morally toxic world. It, uh, but it's also a kind of fish out of water story. And in mm. order to tell a story like that, you need to know where that fish is. You mm. need to know it's a fish, mm. you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, and so, you know, it's like, I didn't want to make a film about a, like a sweet little kid who gets thrown into, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like, it wouldn't, didn't ring true to me. It's like these kids quite often they start, there's something, there is raw material there. Um, and I, it, was, it was important to me that you get a sense that he had grown, that his very beginnings were in a kind of strange... Um, yeah, he's damaged in a way yeah, that it doesn't damaged, all happen. Toxically, yeah, yeah. Uh, morally toxic soup yeah. of its own sort. And yet there are little hints in there of, you know, that he's, I mean, he's, like, he's going to school still. Yeah. He's still, he's got a school uniform on. He's got, I don't know if anyone even notices this, but he's wearing like one rubber washing up glove. Yeah. He's, so, you know, basically in my mind, he's been doing the washing up and he's been talking, she's, she's stopped making noises. He's had to take one of them off to yeah. check her pulse and, and to operate the phone. But, you know, that he was in the middle of basically doing the housework, you know, for his uh, mother though, who is wearing, from memory, she's wearing like a nurse's uniform yeah, or something. Yeah. She's, she was trying. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's just so that very, very quickly you, you create a little picture of what that, what he left, um, where, he, where he came from, and how compromised it was from the very beginning. Very beginning. Um, this is at the risk of repeating some stuff from the earlier session, but I found it fascinating, and, you know, there's most of you weren't there. But you talked about your... Um, complicated relationship with rehearsals and uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you rehearsed Animal Kingdom? How did, you know, once you had cast it, you had everyone together, what was your rehearsal process? Um, and then maybe how that's changed over the years? Do you do things differently? Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, there's not, I'm, all, all I was, you know, saying to 15 people as opposed to how many there are here now is this morning was that I don't do it properly. I don't, I was being confessional this morning. No, but I, I don't mean the not properly part. I was actually referring to the fact that how you spend time with actors, not over script, but over that world, not over lines, but over who they were. No, I'm saying I don't do that yet. I'm, not, I'm saying I know that I need to start doing that because I, <laughs> I've made the mistake of, of, I mean, the mistake I made on Animal Kingdom was that I got into a room not knowing, I just really didn't know how to rehearse. And uh, I had read a couple of books by Judith Weston that were really great. I really believe in that, her, you know, the, the, the script analysis. Um, Breaking the script down from a director's Yeah, and, and just making, turning it into something that you understand and that is then playable is, that, that stuff is incredibly useful. But I still just, it was basically like practical logistics that 
threw me off when I walked into the rehearsal room for Animal Kingdom because it's like you walk in and then you go, okay, it's Monday, first day of rehearsal, but you don't have the whole cast. You've only got you've only got Mendelssohn and uh, and um, Sullivan Stapleton and uh, and James Freshville, and that, that's all you've got. And you go, well, I don't know, what, what do I do with that? And so my first, I remember there was one day when I had, all I had was Mendelssohn, Jackie Weaver, and Luke Ford, who plays the younger brother. And I, and I went, okay, so I guess I'll just find the first scene in the movie that has all three of them in, in it. And uh, so I flipped through the script and then found that scene on page like 87. It's the scene where she goes to visit them in jail. And so I went, okay, let's rehearse this scene. And it was ridiculous because it's like, well, hang on a minute. What were we, what were, what were we doing in the 87 pages before this? <laughs> and, you know, Mendelssohn lost his cool and then we would... Uh, he was throwing furniture around the room. <laughs> And it became clear that what he and I needed to do was go and, you know, so I then shut rehearsal down for two days, went to, sat in his hotel room and we just talked through the script, him and me. And it was, um, and that was, you know, I'm glad that he, you know, brought it to a head. Because <laughs> other actors, I've been in that situation where, you know, it's like other actors wouldn't have done that. They yeah. would have just went, oh, okay, I don't know That's what's what going on, but yeah. it's not my place to do anything yeah. about it. And, Ben forced me to shut rehearsal down for two days so that he and I, so that he could have special time, you know? <laughs> but the movie is better for it, you know? It's like we talked in detail about, you know, and he needed that special time. He mm. is the alpha, he is mm. the apex of that family and he then took that special time and used it to torture the other actors. You know? That's, that's what I, I came across an interview, I think, with um, the James, the, the actor who played Josh, and he said that how much on his toes Ben kept him because he would never know whether he was serious, not serious. Sometimes he would, you know, joke with him, so you think, oh, he's my buddy, and then suddenly he would turn, and, you know, so he said it was a bit of a dance trying to... Yeah, you know, James, is, James was... A, and James got off lightly in a way because Ben worked out early on that he's the best... The thing he wanted to do with James was basically just ignore him and spent the first three weeks of the shoot calling him Josh and stuff, you know, <laughs> just basically ignoring him. Um... But it was the other brothers that, re that got the, you know, Ben is so, like, uh, like out uh, outrageously intelligent. It was the other, the other two guys, Luke Ford and Sullivan Stapleton, who got the, bore the full brunt of Ben's psycho manipulation, you know. Like, it's, like, it's, it's kind of extraordinary. So to the extent that there were, like, you know, fist fights and people threatening to quit and... Uh, um, and it was all, I mean, it was kind of, there was uh, someone this morning was asking in that thing about that scene in the kitchen between where Ben's trying to just kind of goad um, Luke Ford into being a part of this murderous conspiracy mm -hmm. and, and by questioning his sexuality and all that kind of stuff. And I forgot to mention this morning, that day was actually kind of extraordinary because those, those guys weren't even talking to each other. And they, so to rehearse, I had to go off into a room separately with them so to do the lines. And then, because Ben had tortured Luke, tortured him, tortured him. Uh, and it was scary, yeah. but you get in there and you shoot it and you can just feel it. You can feel the loathing in that, you know. <clears throat> um, it's, it's interesting, all, you know, you, all three films um, deal with a question and um, masculinity. Um, Animal Kingdom, Rover, and then War Machine. It's guys, um, a band of guys, but not in that kind of bravado, reward the, you know, banter kind of guy movies that you see. You're actually kind of questioning what it is about this kind of behavior, this kind of way of being men, and where does kind of morality sit in this? So for... Is this something you've always been interested in? Is it? I've not seen Crossbow. I really wish I had at the 2007 short, but I think that has a young male um, protagonist. protagonist. And it's um, about male sexuality yeah, that, in a way. So, or young adolescent sexuality. So how, how is this, uh, you know, what is it about? About men this? that I'm so interested in. <laughs> they gave me a very phallic <laughs> mic to hold. <laughs> 
you know, I, I know Mira's gorgeous and she's in your life. This is not about that. I'm curious. I'm curious about what aspect of masculinity I, I, that fascinates you to keep returning to it. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, and, and, and believe me, I've thought about it a lot. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm fascinated by delusional men. I'm not unaware of the fact that we live in a world that is largely run by delusional sociopathic narcissistic men. Right? <laughs> <clears throat> um, and I find them fascinating. I find their delusion fascinating. I find their seeming lack of self-doubt fascinating. And I'm, uh, and I'm, I, it just happened, I've only made three movies, so, I mean, I've got, there's another one I'm making next year, which is pretty much all about men. But in the... I, I, when I asked you that yesterday, I suspected you would say that. I mean, because this is not some kind of just random, oh, it just happened. This is obviously something you're teasing out. And, and whether you're doing it very self-consciously or not, it is very yeah. much... Um... I mean, um, I am... Uh, yeah, I, I'm, 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 I'm fascinated by... Fascinated by that hubris and by the uh, the the what I can only imagine are the the kind of it's like the 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 fr the fragile fortification mm -hmm. of that stuff you know whatever what are what are the the um, um, what does the psycho topography look like underneath yeah. that front, Sentence, you know, yeah. whatever. But having said that, you know, it's like sometimes, every now and then someone will say to me, you know, it's like, you know, it's like you, your, your films are, um, you've got a problem with women, for instance. Mm. And it's like, and I, I always, I, you know, I, 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 I always actually spend quite a lot of time thinking about what these, I'm very aware of the fact that these worlds are worlds of men. So where and how do the women fit in that world? Brilliant. So that the movies become, in a way, for me, not about movies, and this is, I know this might sound self-serving. That's all right, go ahead. But, you know, the movies for me are very much about, aren't movies in which women are absent, they're about the absence of women, you know what I mean? Uh, because they are, I mean, Animal Kingdom's actually full of women. There's women all, there's... Uh, in fact, I think your, your Janine character is incredible in that sense, and that just the way that she... Um, positions herself in this family as this glue that holds the family together, but also the power that she does have um, in the in the family. I mean, it's, it's a balance between her being very vulnerable, but also very very strong in knowing what she, her brood. And there's a scene um, with Janine. Um, Talking to the lawyer, Wiley, is it Wiley? Am I getting? That's the actor's name, Dan Wiley. Yeah, but what's his Ezra? Ezra. When he when uh, when she says that she wants to get rid of Josh. <laughs> so in this world of men, is a very you know strong central woman character. And what was your decision in terms of making her play against type? Because this could have gone either ways in terms of how she's played Janine. Ah, uh, yeah. No, Jackie, remember, Jackie thought, Jackie assumed that that would be... I was really important to me that I wanted the... Because, you know, the, the character that she plays is one of... Uh, she is a woman who has built her whole sense of self around the, her, the fact of her being... The, the power that she feels being at the center of a group of young, powerful, dangerous men. And so I wanted her to be a loving mother, you know. Her, she is the glue that holds that family together. Um, it was, I didn't want her to, I didn't want that character to be played like a kind of gruff, um, uh, kind of Ma Barker matriarch. I wanted her to play as a loving mother and grandmother. Uh, I don't, Jackie didn't originally, she was surprised. I mean, that was why I cast Jackie, is because I wanted it, she's so tiny and she's so bubbly, and yet she's incredibly, she's cunning, you know? <laughs> yeah. She plays, Jackie 
knows that she is these things and uses it to her <laughs> advantage. Uh, you know, there is like a very, very sharp intelligence underneath that seemingly naive, yeah. bubbly. Um, yeah. Um, would you like to maybe have a few questions at this point for David and then we can talk a bit about War Machine? And I was thinking, oh, this looks like another bleak off-related thing. Then I was sucked in. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like this amazing book. I'm really curious about the relationship between you and, sorry, I just forgot my little tape. I wouldn't play them up. I, that was pitch perfect. Like, I was just blown away. Did you guys work in tandem together? Or what was your process of her? Did we what together? Did we? Tandem. Like, how did you make character decisions together? What was your process in working with her? Because it's just literally that performance was just well, I think most of the work that I did was in the, was just writing the character. I mean, I think one of the reasons why it works was because it's just, it's she is you know it's one of those great things that happens when you have a character that actually turns out to be surprising. You know, that starts in one place and then does something at a certain point that makes you go, oh, that's not. There's a whole other thing going on here. Um, and then was just telling her, giving her broad guidance about, you know, not, don't, I don't want you to play this like some gruff battle axe old, like, you know. Certainly don't, I certainly didn't want her to play it like the real woman, Kath Pettengall, you know, who is just like, you know, with, <laughs> you know, and she's had one of her eyes shot out by one of her sons and stuff and, uh, <laughs> was the um, was the kissing written into it? Yes. Yeah. I was wondering whether that was something that happened when you got the band together, or was that in the script? Because that to me was such a, you know, you yeah, just knew small, that those small things of just establishing that her hold over these kids existed on a level that was almost uh, strange in its kind of sexually proprietorial mm. way. You know, it was. Uh, um, you know, but we also, you know, used to talk about the fact that, um, I mean, we just did it on set. It didn't seem that weird. I know mothers who kiss their sons on the lips and stuff, but I, I not never... Not for th that long. Maybe not for that long. <laughs> what, I, what I thought was, what I remember thinking was weird, so we just shot that stuff and we never really talked about it that much. It just seemed obvious. Well, I remember one thing we thought was quite strange that when we were, even when we were doing it, was that Ben Mendelsohn's first scene when he comes in basically his first scene in the movie, he does sitting um, with Jackie sitting on his lap, you know? Yeah. And I'm going, okay, this is weird. I, can't, I don't know anyone <laughs> whose mothers sit on their laps, you know? It's not that weird. Weirder things have happened. Um, yes. No, I don't know that it's better. I, I just didn't have any control over it. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is one of the things with, you know, when you get some, all actors, as we know, all actors are different and they have different ways of working. And one thing, you know, when you say, for instance, you, you've got Ben Mendelsohn in your film is that you, you, you're going on that ride, you know? Uh, and there were a number of things that happened on that movie where I was just like, okay, I can't, I don't, I've lost control of this. Now I have to work out whether or not the movie's going to suffer because of it. And then on, in every instance, I kind of decided that no, this is probably, this will, I, this, the movie won't suffer because of it. I just need to do what I can to protect the other actors, you know, to let them know that I'm, I'm on their side. And, uh, <clears throat> but there is that kind of going back to the theme of the weekend, you know, the uh, the authenticity that we talked about this morning. Some of that very fractious relationships made, I think, for a certain amount of authenticity in what came 
in front of the camera because, and there is a temptation to just push for more of that. Yeah, I don't like um, doing that because I don't like actors having a, having a bad, bad time. time. I mean, I had an experience on the last movie, there was one actor who was quite disruptive. And I was worried because in the first week or two, maybe, I started to feel the energy of all the other actors start to mm. flag. You know, they were all so excited when they turned up. And then suddenly they got a little sniff that, oh, oh man, wow, I don't know how I'm going to work with this. And, you know, but then it all bounced, came back because they end up all bonding with each other over their shared hatred of this other person. <laughs> <clears throat> You've got to find that authenticity one way or another. Yeah. Um, you uh, talked about your fascination with the delusional men and that is so tied to War Machine. Um, and also, very smartly, how to transcend when you talk about a film like that, how a story like that, a moment like that in history, even if it is around a person, how do you make it go beyond the biopic of that delusional man so that it's not individual villainy where we get lost, but a critique of something larger? So would you like to tell us a little bit about your relationship with War Machine and what made you pick up that book in the first place? And then how did you approach that film? Um, yes. Thank you. Um, where, uh, so uh, I had, okay, so I had the short version. I had been looking for a way into a movie that might be set in one of the contemporary theaters of war, either Afghanistan or Iraq. Couldn't find it. Um, had assumed, given the tenor of my first two movies, that it would probably be something dirty and raw and menacing and nasty about the experience of the battlefield, but I couldn't find a story. I didn't, couldn't find any characters. I couldn't... And I didn't want to make that movie anyway. I thought all movies that get made about these theatres of war are that kind of movie, and they're all basically... They're all... They're basically kind of... They, they you know, dressed up as... Um, um, brutal, you know, uh, representations of the, you know, the inhumanity of man and, you know, the experience of war, they're actually turned, always end up being just kind of American military propaganda movies about bravery, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and so I thought, I don't even want to make that movie. Uh, and then Brad's company, Plan B, brought me Michael Hastings' book, which was about uh, a four-star general, Stan McChrystal, who was work running the war in Afghanistan um, in 2009-2010. I started reading the book and then went, oh, I think this is the movie. I think the one I want to make actually is about the delusional um, clowns who run this whole show. Uh, and and just make it a movie about, uh, about American hubris and um, and... Uh, delusion and, but also, but incorporate that stuff. You know, it's like incorporate the stuff about the kids on the ground because they are victims in their own way. They the make the movie about the disconnect between um, the executive level of the military and what's happening on the ground and make it not just about how they're not talking to each other, but actually make the movie feel disconnected. Make it a tonally schizophrenic movie about, um, buffoonery, delusional buffoonery at the, at the top and the, 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 the brutality of the consequences of that buffoonery for the people on the ground, both civilian and military, you know. That was the, these were the guiding principles of War Machine. And um, did you, because Plan B had approached you, did you always know that Brad Pitt was going to play the general? Was that part of the deal of... Oh. I knew I was writing it for him, but I didn't know. I, but you know, he, he wasn't—he never actually going to actively commit to anything when without a script. So I, you know, I went and met with him before I started writing, and I knew the plan was for him to do that. And um, you know, it was—and it was spooky. I mean, I did quite a lot of work. I did a lot of that work I was talking about this morning of all the you know I had been researching for ages, and then I was outlining, and that stuff took a long time, but. So by the time they came to me, you know, I did, you know, and I'd done the outline, the, I wrote the draft really quite quickly. And then I gave plan B that first draft. And then thinking, okay, I'm just 
putting that in the development oven for 18 months, whatever. Brad had other movies to do and stuff. And then they called me like a week later and said, uh, okay, so <clears throat> we're doing it this year and Brad's had a movie fall over and he wants to do it and he wants to do it now. And it was just like, oh, holy shit. Uh, <laughs> it happened really quickly. It happened scarily quickly because it was so big and... Um, and how do you prep for something that big? I mean, the, the rover prior to that, which I absolutely love, is such a contained film, stripped back, leaned, you know, and then from rover to war machine. Um, and while thematically you may argue that you're still teasing out some of the same ideas, and I would agree, but just in terms of scale and who you were working with, and the number of people you were working with, where you were working, how do you as a director make that transition and, and still make the world feel and yourself feel, yep, I've, I've got it under control? I mean, my experience of the films are all kind of the same. And, you know, I take this all the way back to the short films. You know, for me, there is like a, there's a monitor and there's a camera and there's some actors and there's, you know, some heads of department that I'm talking to and it doesn't, it's, it doesn't matter if there's like, you know, we're just making it with a video camera and 10 people or there's 40 trucks in the street and 150 people. You know, it's all, my experience of it is the same. If anything, on the bigger the movie in some ways, the easier it gets because you've got more support, you know? Your problem arises, you just throw money at it, you know? And, um, which can be dangerous in yeah, its way. Yeah. You know, I've, I've, on, I've always, never failed to have an experience on a film where I haven't had to solve a problem because we don't have the money to, you know? And so in, in solving a money problem, I've come up with a creative solution that is better than what was there before, you know? So, uh, but my experience of the, the whole machine of it is always the same. It's just... Uh, and was making something for Netflix a different... Um, was it at, at, in terms of you knew that this was not theatrical in the way that your previous films were and you shot this digitally, the other two were shot film. Um, did that change any of your... in the way that you conceived the project? No. No? I mean, I would have... I thought that I would have shot War Machine on film uh, if I'd been allowed, because, but Netflix were like, uh, one thing, one thing that is not negotiable is you can't shoot on film, you have to shoot 4K digital. They're just, they're future-proofing, you know. Um, but then I made the movie and realised, oh, I don't know that I would have wanted to do this on film anyway. It's like, well, this was the, I shot it with three cameras. There were so many scenes that had at least, you know, 10 actors and 50 extras and it's just, you know, I've been through that. I mean, I remember one of the worst nights on Animal Kingdom was a night where we were shooting just four, four of the family members sitting around a table in a diner at night and, uh, and it was just one scene, four people in a diner, an empty diner, and I took like seven hours to shoot it just slowly working my way around the table, you know. And by the end of it, they hated each other. They were, you know, literally one of them, they were, th uh, um, they were, I, they had to be held apart. One of them was disappearing off into the city at night saying, you're not seeing me, I'm, I'm not coming back and stuff. And that was my fault. I just dragged this scene out unnecessarily, you know. I didn't care how they were feeling. I was just shooting it, you know. <laughs> So, you know, shooting, working my way around a room with three cameras was, you know, joyous. But the, the, no, the experience of actually, I didn't, I just shot it like it was a movie. And like, uh, and I don't know how, you know, the first two movies I made were Australian movies and then this one was with what is effectively uh, a Hollywood studio. Mm. And I kept being told all the time by the people I was working with that you're having a really good Hollywood studio experience and that I never heard from them. You know, they never, they was just total freedom the whole time. You know, uh, I kept being told that normally at this stage, if we were working with this studio or that studio, you'd be given the most annoying notes you can possibly imagine and we'd be helping you through it, but you'd be, you'd be a seething mess. And, you know, I never had any of that. I really liked working with them. So you'd say that the, the scale of the film never interfered with your vision of it in terms of, I'm talking about kind of material realities of production because it's Plan B, because it's Netflix, because there's, you know, 
stakeholders very different from what you're used to with Animal Kingdom and Rover. Did you feel this was the, your vision of the film and that's the film you made? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, totally. The reason I'm asking is because there's always this assumption that when you move from these very intimate small films with, you know, five million scale to something that's... What was the budget for War Machine, by the way? Well... The internet says all sorts of things and we know not to believe it. I don't know. It was probably about... I mean, you know, all up... But that means great. It was a huge budget. If a director doesn't know the budget, (laughs) right, then it was a really good budget. Well, I mean, by the budget that I had to work with... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> That's a very good place to be. Um, but the, you know, that was the beauty of going to Netflix in the first place. When I mean, we actually developed this project at New Regency and it became very apparent to all of us that even with Brad in it, that no one was going to make this movie because it was politically contentious, it was tonally weird, it was... Studios just don't make no, no. anything other than stupid movies now. Yeah. You know? And, and, and it's, it's absolutely true that because it's so much not about that war propaganda and they would have not known where to fit it, right? Because it's not like this kind of hagiographic film or the kind of fall of a great man kind of film. You know, it's, it's a tonally difficult film for yeah. conservative studios. So um, I, I think you're, you're dead right that if this was your vision for the film, then it had to be... Um, yeah, we knew it needed to be protected by people that, that were, you know, so we, we knew that we knew very early on that New Regency weren't going to make it. Yeah. Uh, and so we thought, fuck, okay, what are we going to do? We can, we can, you know, I mean, Brad and I were, were in these pitches, right? So we, we can just like weirdly go around town kind of cap in hand or we can, let's just, we know where this is going to go. No one's going to make this or they, they want American Sniper. You know, they don't want this. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we thought, let's go to Netflix. They're, they're cashed up yeah. and they're looking for stuff and bringing Brad into their fold would be a huge deal. Uh, let's, let's see what they say. And they just straight away went, yep, we want to do it. And do whatever you want, you know. Do you know a lot about guns? Do I know? Yeah, because, I mean, because, you know, there's so many guns in your films and I'm always thinking, like, no, does someone I've never shot one. I've never, you? I've never, you know, all those times on set when the armories are always yeah, there, yeah. I've never picked one up, I've never shot a gun, I've never... Uh, I mean, I'm, you know... They're frightening things. <laughs> That's why they're... Uh, I always feel, even when you're on set with an armourer and it's all safe, safe, right, I right. still feel like I don't... Like, you do your thing, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Um, there's, and you can feel it. When, you, when I was making War Machine, you know, we were shooting in the UAE for, the, for most of the exterior stuff, blah, 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 and we had access to all of their hardware and, you know, the Black Hawk helicopters and Chinooks and all that kind of stuff. It's seductive stuff, you know. We started... We were practically using Blackhawks as taxis to fly up and down the country and stuff. <laughs> and when you're in them, it, you, there's something so seductively powerful about them, these incredible pieces of machinery. And the way that those pilots, you know, all the people in the UAE are basically, they're all, you know, most of them are like American pilots who are just going yeah, there yeah. for the money and they fly them like, uh, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, you go, okay. You can feel the power of that uniform. It's dangerous, you know. Um, you said um, yesterday that there is, you know, apart from many things you do, and different directors have different ways to keep some part of them sane, um, grounded. And um, you talked about being a meditator. And we said that it was very stupid that most people don't do it. And I thought we've got a captive crowd. Of stupid people. No. <laughs> of, of people who be who might be inspired by you. I don't know. I mean, you know, it's like I mean you were also saying last night you, you don't, don't say anything I said. You don't <laughs> that you don't want to sound you don't want to be proselytizing, yeah, you know, yeah. but because it's like whatever. I, I just it makes it always has made total sense to me. Yeah. The um no, I found, it fascinating. I found it fascinating because we were talking about director's prep 
And we said, how do people prep? What is it that you do to make sure that there is a way to quieten the noise, to actually focus on doing the things that you need to get done? And I'm sure some run, some, you know, do something else. But I do think that you need, especially, I mean, there's so much violence and brutality in the films that you're talking about and giving us access into something that's hard to watch sometimes. And I always think that your own prep of, of getting into that world, you would have to find ways to, to keep. I don't know that the content of the movies has much, has much part to play in that I've, you know, as, as kind of twisted as it sounds, you know, the brutality of the movies themselves or, you know, whatever is like, I don't experience it on set as brutal. It's fun. You know, it's uh, the very fact that I'm there getting to make a movie, even if it involves like blowing someone's brains out, I experience it as fun and terror at the same time, fun, terror, but, but it's not, you know, I'd have the same experience if I was just shooting two people telling each other how much they love each other, you know. I'd be having a great time and be terrified that I was making a mess of it. <laughs> the meditating is for me just actually about everything in between the movies. When I'm on, when I'm working, I'm fine. It's, I just love the exhilaration of the going on that adrenaline ride and blah, blah, blah. It's the strange like void you get dropped into when it's over that for me is where it's good to just quieten everything down. A couple of questions, if somebody, yes, please. Um, back on the animal kingdom days, um, were you a crew? Um, of similar experience, or were you surrounded by more experience in the industry than you had, and have you taken any of them with you through your career? They were a bunch of all different people. You know, I had my... I mean, probably the one who was closest in experience to me was uh, Adam Arkapur, the DP. Um, and that, you know, I had, I had made my previous two shorts with... Um, uh, a guy named Greg Fraser, who's um, <coughs> very accomplished, and by that stage, he was at that point he was unavailable, and I was looking around, and I had to make that decision: Am I going to go with some kind of old guy who's, you know, because sometimes you, it's a delicate relationship that one you have with the DP because they they're like they're competing for attention, you know what I mean? They're uh, they're like rock stars sometimes, and you, I just I didn't want to find myself in a, a kind of mentor, uh, a relationship with a mentor. Uh, I wanted to be there with someone who and who was who I knew was talented, but was uh, as hungry as I was. Now with Adam, that kind of in some ways presented a few problems because I don't know that we fully trusted each other. You know what I mean? We both thought, I think you're talented. But maybe you're not. <laughs> and so we were constantly second-guessing each other's choices and, you know, we argued a lot. And, and then I subsequently, you know, I then worked with him again on a TV show in New York and I thought, I, I want to I work with Adam again because I just want to see if it's changed. And by, since then he'd shot in Snowtown and True Detective and, and, then, uh, and, then I, and then we got together and, yeah, it was so much easier because we just went, okay, you're all right, I trust you. <laughs> um, but there were other people who were, you know, it's like I've never worked for some, not bad by choice, I've never worked with the same DP twice. Uh, um, there's a couple of people I've worked with on every movie and other people that, you know, there's very few that I've not worked with because I just hated them. <laughs> but there's a couple. <laughs> On that very honest note, I'm aware that we have to give the room up and we have another session to go to. So thank you so much, David. The Big Screen Symposium is brought to you by Script to Screen and JNA Productions. We would like to thank our event partners, the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, Images and Sound, Auckland Tourism Events and Economic Development, and Stage and Screen Travel Services. Voiceover is provided by Samantha Dukes and music by Poddington Beer.